Today we're going to do things a little bit out of order. I ask that you stay with me. At the close of the service, we will give some announcements and take up our normal Wednesday night tithe and offering. But I want to share with you just a few things that are in my spirit as we walk through Holy Week and as I've been reading the scripture and just uh, taking in the last week of Christ's time here on earth. And I want to share you, read with you a couple of scriptures and then just share some things. And then we're going to have a time of ministry. And I want to lay hands, and our pastors with, along with us, uh, we want to lay hands on all those who might uh, need ministry, uh, specifically healing, or if you have someone in your family or a loved one that you'd like to pray for uh, that needs healing, and just lift those things up before God and ask that He would move. Our ushers uh, have, and they're going to help me pass some of these out really quickly. Uh, it is a list of uh, scriptures that will guide you through uh, the final days of Christ uh, leading up into His crucifixion and resurrection. I want to encourage you this week to take some time and read these scriptures. There's not, they're not really long e- each day. You could probably read them all in five or ten minutes. It's not a lot of reading. But I believe that um, Easter is more than just one day. There was so much that Christ did, and we celebrate the resurrection. And believe me, I'm not downplaying that at all. But I don't want us to miss the other things that Christ did, uh, because as we'll talk about tonight, he went through some pretty dramatic and some pretty serious things uh, leading up to the cross and his resurrection. And we don't want to forget about those things and the impact they have on our life. And so on this, uh, on this paper here, you'll see uh, it'll lead you through each day what you can read, looking through the Gospels as we read the story of what, was take, what has taken place. Uh, today is Wednesday. Uh, I am going to read a few of the scriptures, not all of them, but I'll read a couple of the scriptures that are on there and I'll just say a few things. We're not going to be real long tonight. I want to have time to pray and, and, uh, for, for anyone who wants it. So I'm just going to take about 20 minutes or so. I'm going to read through a couple of these scriptures, and I'm going to share with you a couple of things that are on my heart. Is that okay tonight? I encourage you to read these uh, both yourself and to your family. I've been taking time to talk with my children about uh, each day. I miss today. I'll try to fit, get that before on our way home tonight. But I've been talking to them about the, the last days of Jesus' life. It's important for us to know the story. Um, let's begin in Luke chapter 21, verse 37. You don't have to turn there with me. They're going to put it on the screen. We're just going to read a couple of verses in each passage. So uh, you don't have to turn to this one with me. Luke chapter 21, verse 37. I'm going to read these two verses, and then we're going to pray, and uh, we'll, we'll walk through the Scripture today. Luke chapter 21, verse 27, I mean, excuse me, verse 37 and 38. And in the daytime, he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and stayed on the mountain called Olivet. Then early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. Father, I thank you for your presence that's here today. I feel something in the atmosphere this week. I feel a a remembrance and a recognition of what you did for us. And I feel a nearness and a closeness to you, Jesus. I ask that you would speak to us tonight, that you would uh, move in this place, and that you would bring a healing to those in need tonight. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This first scripture reading tells us just a piece uh, of what is happening as Jesus on, on the actual Wednesday before his uh, uh, crucifixion and ultimate resurrection. On Wednesday, we see, we're going to see several things happening in the, in the day and night. And you're going to see here that Jesus is doing essentially the same thing he always did. Jesus is in the temple teaching the people. Every day, he goes and he teaches. What's he teaching? Well, there's a number of things that you'll see he's taught over the last few days. The parable of the fig tree. Uh, He cursed the fig tree and then he taught about why he cursed the fig tree and all these things. He's teaching on the message of the kingdom. He's, He's teaching the same things Jesus always teaches. And there's an importance uh, and there's something uh, valuable that we should know as we think about these verses. Well, okay, he's in the temple teaching. But you've got to know something about Jesus. Jesus knows that his time is coming. Jesus knows that he is days away from one of the most horrific uh, scenes of torture and humiliation and pain and suffering that the world has ever seen. He knows he is days away from his death. Now, let me ask you this question. If you were days away from your death, take out the cross, take out the whipping post, take out uh, the humiliation, the beard being plucked from his face and the, the spear in his I take all that out. Just say, you know that you are within two to three days of, of dying. What would you be doing? You would be doing the things that are most important to you. Maybe you would be spending them with your family. I watched uh, this week uh, a movie that came out a few years ago with uh, uh, Jack Nicholson and uh, The Bucket List. And And they were just talking about this issue of would you want to know. If you knew the date you were going to die, would you want to know it? It's an intriguing question when you think about it. But when you look at it through the eyes of Jesus, he knows And yet he's doing the most important thing he can think of. What is that? He's doing the will of his father. And he's preaching. And he's teaching. And he's doing his very best to get the word out there. That the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I want it to be said of me. I want it to characterize my life. That at the day that death comes for me. Or Christ splits the heavens and comes back to this earth. I want to be found doing the will of God. I want that to be said of me. It characterized Jesus and and my desire and my goal in life. I believe the Bible teaches us that we should be Christ-like, that we should strive to be like him. And so, therefore, I want it to be said of me. When Jesus comes for me, I want to be serving him. I want to be reaching people. And I want to be doing the will of the Father. That's what I see. So then we go over to Matthew chapter 26, verse 1 through 5. Didn't get a lot of amens on that, but that's okay. I'll just let you think on that for a few days. Would you want to know if you knew you only had two days left? Matthew 26, verse 1 through 5. Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished. Uh, are you with me? Matthew 26, verse 1 through 5. Okay, the computer's stalling. I'll wait for a second. Are we rebooting? Okay, let me just read it to you then. Now it came to pass when Jesus finished all these sayings that he said to his disciples, 
You know that after two days is the Passover and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Remember I just said to you, Jesus knows his time is coming. It's Wednesday before that awful Friday. Then the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders of the people assembled at the palace of the high priest who was called Caiaphas. Caiaphas, excuse me, Caiaphas, and plotted to take Jesus by trickery and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, let there be an uproar among the people. Here we go again. Jesus knows his time is coming. And I want you to note something very interesting. As the chief priest, the, the, the lead Jews, these religious people are plotting, plotting to trick and kill Jesus. Verse 5. Notice what they said. Not during the feast, let there be an uproar among the people. Their plan was not to kill Jesus on what we know to be Good Friday. They thought they were in control of the situation. But let's look at verse 2. The words of Jesus. You know that after two days is the Passover and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. The plan of the enemy was not to cause people to see this thing. They weren't trying to bring attention to Jesus so that his message could get out. They were trying to put him away. They were trying to do it in secret. They were trying to kill Jesus in a way that this whole deal would just go away and the people would forget about him. They didn't want to do it in such a way that there would be an uproar and more people would want to follow this man that, that he was proclaiming to be the Christ. But they were trying to do away with him. The enemy thought he had a plan. But all along, God was in control. You know, I I think that it's important that we remember that everything in this story happened according to the will of God. They literally planned not to kill him on that day, and yet they did it anyway. Do you know that in your life, God can cause the enemy to do for you what he had planned not to do? The very thing that he said, I won't let this happen in your life. God can cause him to do that according to the will of God. That's the power that God has. He's in control. But I want you to note something. I want you to think about this. On Sunday, what we know is Palm Sunday. And you'll remember we talked about just a little bit uh, in services on Sunday. That Jesus comes in. He comes in riding on a donkey as the prince of peace. They're throwing their their garments down. So the donkey is walking across his garments. And they're worshiping him. And they're saying, Hosanna. They're proclaiming him to be king. They're saying, save us now. They are shouting his praises at the rooftops. So much that the Bible says that the entire city was moved. But at the same time. In the height of this whole deal with people claiming him to be king and worshiping him and shouting his name at the same time, he's preparing to be crucified by the very same people. I find this very interesting. He is the king. He's the one that will save us. Jesus, I am your king. I am the Christ. I am the Messiah. I am the son of God. I am all these amazing things. And oh, by the way, I'm going to die on a cross. I find this paradox quite interesting as I look at my life and I recognize, uh, I've heard it said often and I've said it, that life exists, and you, you, may have, you, may, you may believe this or have said this, that life is full of mountains and valleys. 
of high points and low points. And it seems like we go all the way to the top and life is good and then we go down and we're, and we're struggling and we're fighting. How many of you have felt that before? But as I thought about this story and the paradox that Jesus was in, how at the very same time he is uh, being heralded as, heralded as king and then it, within moments he is also knowing that he's about to be crucified. I've thought about, uh, about this in a different perspective. And then I read a, a, a blog by Pastor Rick Warren, who pastors one of the largest churches in the nation, Saddleback Church out in California. He's written many bestsellers. And he was talking about a similar subject, and it really just stood out to me because in, in many ways it defines uh, seasons of my life. And he talked about this issue of how we think that th- times go from good to bad and back to good and then back to bad again. But He felt like in his life, life was more like train tracks, two parallel tracks, uh, and at the same time, bringing him good things and blessings from God and high things, but at the very same time, those things are going on, bringing bringing to him the attacks of the enemy and the works of the enemy and, and the devil trying to tear him down. And so it's not, and he felt like, and and this really stood out to me, that it's not as if we go, everything is good and then everything is bad, but rather at the very same time, you've heard it said, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. And so at the very same time, we see we're thanking God for all the good things, and yet we're saying, God, what is going on over here? I don't know if you've ever experienced that, but this is what I felt to be the truth in my life. Pastor Rick Warren said it like this, and he began to name all the incredible things that God has done in his life. And he's written multiple bestsellers. He's uh, been able to speak with presidents and kings and, and to pray with them and to influence them. He has been able to develop what he calls his peace plan, where they train and equip leaders, where they go out around the world and they're trying to fight AIDS and they're trying to educate children. And they're, they're doing all these things all over the world, these huge initiatives to impact the world and and these incredible things are happening the church is growing exponentially and he says oh by the way my wife is battling for her life with with cancer and so he said at the same time God is just doing all these incredible things and yet the devil is on the attack at the very same time I wonder if that represents your life because I know it does mine God is doing so many incredible things and 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 I've just got so much to be thankful for and then you look around the corner and here comes the devil Two train tracks. This is where Jesus is. It was the best of times for Jesus. And it was the worst of times. But I'm encouraged because Jesus stayed the course. Jesus could have turned and run. Jesus could have walked away and said, nope, it's too much. The the good doesn't outweigh the bad. But for Jesus, the will of the Father always outweighed the cost. Gonna cost me a trip to the whipping post, to the Roman scourge, I'll take it. Gonna talk cost me a trip to the cross, I'll take it. Gonna cost me humiliation, I'll take it. Gonna cost me my life, I'll take it, as long as I can do the will of the Father. So the question as we look at this in our life is does the will of God outweigh the plans of the enemy and what seems to be the pain and the frustrations of our life? Well, let's move to to Mark, the 14th chapter, because as this day begins to wind to a close, something very, very important happens. We'll begin in verse uh, 1, 
You'll notice it says, uh, or in verse uh, 3, and, beginning, and being in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at the table, a woman came having an alabaster flask of very costly oil of spikenard. Then she broke the flask and poured it on his head. But there were some who were indignant among themselves and said, Why was this fragrant oil wasted? For it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they criticized her sharply. We know the speaker here to be Judas. The one who was crying the loudest was Judas. We know this from the other Gospels who tell this story. Jesus replies, let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a good work for me. If you have the poor with you always, and whatever you wish, you may do them good, but me... You do not have always. She has done what she could. She has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. What an incredible story. Mary, the sister of Lazarus, the same one whose other sister Martha was so upset with because she was worshiping Jesus when Martha felt like she should have been doing the dishes. And yet she was always found at the feet of Jesus worshiping. But on this time, she doesn't just worship him as she normally does, but she goes and gets a, a flask, a, an alabaster flask uh, of costly oil or spikenard. It cost approximately 300 denarii, which for uh, which the average... Salary for a normal laborer or worker in those days was about one denarii a day. So when you average that over the course of the, the work days that you would have in a year, basically this was one year's salary. And she broke it over his feet. The thing about breaking this bottle was once you broke it, you couldn't get it back together again. She did something that was irreversible. She broke it at the feet of Jesus. The crowd can't handle this the critics the disciples uh, Judas being the loudest of all he he's indignant among himself and and he says why did we waste this because he missed the point he missed the issues guys it's a are y'all cold it is like an iceberg right here I can't even think straight it's no it's not that one it's this one that that particular event right there <laughs> thank you couldn't take anymore. I kept thinking it's going to kick off. It's going to kick off. It's going to kick off. No, it's not. <laughs> the disciples can't take it. They, they're, 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 why are you wasting this? But I want you to look at something different here. Jesus often went to the home of Lazarus, to the home of Mary, and to the home of Martha. Is one of his favorite places to visit. When he was in the region, he would go visit them. They were some of his closest friends. You'll remember that when they came to him and said, Lazarus is dead, the Bible says that Jesus literally wept because that's how close they were. This was, they were close-knit. But Mary never let her closeness to Jesus interfere with her recognition of who he really was. You see, sometimes we can get so used to being in the presence of God that we forget how powerful that God really is. 
we, it gets to be a place where we feel like we're just in the presence of a good person, of uh, a friend, a relative, and we forget that we're in the presence of God Almighty. We forget that we're in the presence of Jehovah, the, the one that was before there was anything else. We, we forget who we're in the presence of. Mary didn't forget this. She said, guys, listen, you can all be comfortable with your feet up, uh, having a good time, laughing and telling jokes with Jesus, that's fine. But I haven't forgotten who is sitting at my table. It's Jesus. It's the Messiah. It's the Christ. It's the one that we've been waiting on for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. It's the one who will save us. It will will be the one who will deliver us from sin. It's the one who will bring all of the promises into being in our life. So you can do what you will, but I refuse to get complacent. I refuse refuse to get apathetic. I refuse to get so comfortable that I forget who I'm with. I'm going to worship Jesus. I want to be comfortable in the presence of God, but not so comfortable that I lose track of the moment and why I'm here. I want to feel at ease in the presence of God, but at the very same time in awe of the presence of God. Growing up, Oftentimes, my grandmother would cook lunch for my family on Sunday afternoon, and we would, uh, I just, year, Sunday after Sunday, year after year, I just have so many vivid memories of being at my grandmother's house, my Granny Marshall's house, and she would cook gumbo or turkey and dressing, or uh, they would go get Popeye's chicken or whatever it might be, and, and she would cook, and we would eat, and all the, my family would come over, and my cousins after church on Sunday, be a wonderful time, and, um, Something, something would happen. Shortly after lunch was over, the adults would move to the living room. And this was a very important moment for me as a kid because the rest of my day before Sunday night, because this is in the days when we had Sunday night church service every single week. We had Sunday morning and then a Sunday evening, 6 o'clock service. So the, the time in there, which was my free time during the day to play with my cousins and my friends and football and uh, army and BB gun wars and all the other stupid things that I did as a kid. Uh, y'all know I'm from the country, so we didn't have paintball. We shot BB guns at each other. Something very important would happen, and I I remember as you would watch to see what would happen, which way it would go, and it would dictate the rest of the day. My father would finish eating. My grandfather always sat at at one end of the table, and my father always sat at the other end of the table. And when they would get through eating, my dad would make his way to the living room, and they would sit down to watch a football game or a golf tournament or the Astros or just talk or whatever would happen. If my dad took his shoes off, and my grandparents all my life have this recliner that's electric, and you hit the button, and, zzz, and it goes back, and the feet go up, and it's, I don't, I don't know, I've never seen another one in my life, but you hit this little button, it goes up or down, and it lifts you up out of the chair. It's really nice. When you're feeling kind of lazy, you just want to, it'll lift you right on up out of the chair. And if he hit that button, and that chair went back, and his shoes came off, I knew it was going to be a good day for me. Because within moments, he was going to be out cold. And I got to stay and play the rest of the afternoon before church time. But if he didn't take his shoes off, and he didn't get good and comfortable, then I wouldn't even bother going outside and getting dirty because I knew we're about to go home. So I would sit there and wait. like, 
please let him hit that button. Please let him kick those shoes off. Let him get comfortable because if he'll get comfortable, man, I, I, I'm, I'm here for good. Because we were always comfortable at my grandmother's house, but there became a point when my dad would get too comfortable. And for the life of him, he could not stay awake. I don't blame him. Because when I go to my grandmother's house now, I went over there for a Sunday afternoon lunch here a few weeks ago when I preached in Nederland. And if I hit that very same button, and if I am foolish enough to take my shoes off and get just a little bit too comfortable, you know what happens to me? I am snoring just like I watched my father do my entire life. There is a place in the presence of God where we get to, where we get so comfortable that we lose track of why we're here. And we lose the awe of being in the presence of God. I don't want to pick on anybody. I know my wife has always taken off her shoes. And when you're wearing those heels, I don't know how you ladies do it. I don't blame you if you're taking off your shoes. I'm not telling you don't take off your shoes in the presence of God. That's not what I'm illustrating. What I'm talking about is getting so comfortable that we become like the disciples. And we just get indignant. We get complacent. We get apathetic. And we forget what Jesus did, we talked about the song, how he tore the veil. We forget what it took for us to have this opportunity that we're here tonight. Don't do that in your life. Is that okay? All right, let's read verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. So he sought how he might conveniently betray him. Judas couldn't take it. This was the last straw for him. And he leaves this scene. And he goes and betrays Jesus. What did he betray Jesus for? He didn't betray Jesus for a better God or a better version of Jesus. No, no, no. He betrayed Jesus for money, pure and simple. Money became the most important thing in Judas' life. When he says, why are you wasting this money? It was because Judas wanted money and he would do whatever it took to get it. There was nothing noble in what he did, as some historians have tried to argue. He uh, was betrayed by, he betrayed Jesus for money because money drove him. It drove him when he spoke to Mary. It drove him when he used to steal from the treasury or the purse. And it, and it eventually drove him when he traded the life of Christ for 30 pieces of silver. You've got to know something. If money drives you, eventually you will trade away your relationship with the Savior to get it. The Bible says you cannot turn, serve two gods. You cannot serve both God and mammon. You'll love the one and hate the other. If, if money drives you and money becomes your God, eventually it will cost you re your relationship with the Savior. Not because it's the way he wants it, but it's because it is, uh, is the trap of allowing money to become a God in your life. So let's go down to John, and, and this didn't happen on Wednesday, but we're going to close here. And I want to read a couple of verses in John chapter 19, verse 1 through 4. So then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. Now I want you to note, in John's re reflection as he's writing what happened, Jesus has already been in Pilate's court. Pilate has already tried to talk with Jesus and he didn't really want to do all this and he didn't want to do what they were saying. But eventually he felt like he had to. He, 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 
they, the, the Jews decided to let Barabbas go and, and take Jesus and crucify him. So Pilate takes him in verse 19 and he scourged him. Scourged was one of the most brutal, brutal instruments of torture, but it wasn't just to punish you and to cause you pain, but it was an instrument that was to get information out of you. It was used to pull things out of you. So we say in the Jewish tradition, you could only be whipped 39 times or 40 lashes minus one. But in the Roman tradition, they would whip you and beat you until they got what out of you what they wanted, until they got what they felt was the truth out of you. So it's possible that Jesus was only whipped 39 times. It was also possible that they kept whipping him and kept beating him and kept beating him because the Romans weren't bound to Jewish law. And the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put him on a purple robe, and they said to him, Hail, King of Jews, and they struck him with their hands. Verse 4, And Pilate then went out again and said to him, Behold, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no fault in him. Now I want you to notice something interesting in this story, because it's going to tell us something about the suffering that Jesus went through. Pilate Tries to talk them out of it. They won't have it. So he whips him to the point that he's at the brink of death. Pilate thinks, well, maybe this is enough. Maybe this is enough for the Jews. And he brings him out again and he says, this is enough. Please, that's enough, guys. There's no fault in this man. I have whipped him beyond all mercy and and this is enough. Please, don't make me crucify him. And the Jews say, absolutely not crucify him. John makes a distinction here because the cross and the whipping post were two different places with two different meanings in your life. The cross, uh, and and of course they're all wrapped up in the same event, but in the same week, in the same course of events happening, but Jesus died on the cross for our sins But if they're two separate places and two separate events, why did he have to go to the whipping post? Well, 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 24 tells us, Who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree. So he went to the cross. The tree is is the cross. He went there so that he could bear our sins in his own body. That we, having died for our sins, he died for our sins, might live for righteousness. But notice something else here. By whose stripes you were healed. By his stripes you were healed. He went to the cross for our sin. He went to the whipping post for your healing. It was important to Jesus. It was was serious. Last Easter, I purchased and and showed you, many of you may remember, uh, the most accurate replica, replica of a Roman scourge that's ever been built. Joel, if you'll get ready and... Uh, Carl, I think he's going to need a little help here. Uh, This is the most accurate replica that's ever been built of the Roman scourge. They would dip this thing in goat's blood, and then they would beat the back, the sides, the leg, the front, everything. They would just beat you mercilessly. Two huge Roman guards would get on each side, one right-handed and one left-handed, and they would just, uh, you've all seen the Passion of the Christ. You know what they would do. But I want to show you in real life, this is six mil plastic right here. You're going to have to pull a lot tighter than that. Let me see the muscles there, guys. <laughs> um, 
this is six mil plastic here. It's said to be the closest thing in it to what it would be like on human skin with, the, with this uh, scourge. Turn this way just a little bit, Carl. I don't want to hurt anybody here. I was practicing just, just to make sure I get this thing right and then process one of these huge things came back and hit me on the hand. and Yes. And so they would take Jesus and they would stretch you uh, so that your, your, your back and your skin was tight as it is now. And these huge Roman guards who were muscled up, big guys, much stronger than I, they would grab this, dip it in goat's blood, and they would just... <laughs> Carl, what'd I tell you? Now, I want you to turn and face it this way. Now, this is with Carl letting go. And still... I want you to think about the back of Jesus. Bring it over here and lift it up, guys. Right here in front. I want you to see this now. Every time he took a stripe, this is what happened to his flesh. Every single time. 39 at least, maybe more. All over his body. Why did Jesus do this? Why did he go through this? He went because he loved you, because he was serious about you being healed. Every time when that Roman soldier would rear his arms back with that whip, someone with cancer was on his mind. Somebody's child in the hospital today was on his mind every time, over and over again, to the point at which I don't know how he stayed alive. Doctors, when you study the scientific realities of what happened to him, we're not sure how he didn't bleed out right there because it was so brutal. But he went there, not for your sins. He went to the cross for that. He went here so that you could be healed. Thank you, guys. I want my pastors and elders to come with me and and stand with me. And I want to take just a a few moments here. And I want to pray for anyone in the room who maybe yourself needs healing in your body. Or maybe you know someone who needs a healing. They need a miracle. And I want you to know, Isaiah was prophesying about the Savior. And he said, by his stripes, they're healed. He was talking about you.